Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, a series in which we take a deep dive into the Dungeon Master's guides written for the previous editions of our favorite game. We aim to discuss what worked, what didn't work, what got pulled into future editions, and what got left by the side of the road. And on this, the ninth day of Edition Wars, my GM gave to me Nine Ladies Dancing, which would be a pretty good artifact. And for scheduling reasons, we're trying to cover this whole thing in one episode. Wish us luck, folks. Oh my. Yes. The first thing that I want to bring to your attention on this is that this Dungeon Master's Guide, the cover, is an homage to the BX box set. Nice. Because the BX box set, for those of you that don't know, the red and blue box, the, the basic and the expert set, the Moldvay Cook, okay? In the first one, there was an image of some uh, PCs fighting a dragon in a cavern. And in the expert set, there is a wizard on the cover who is creating a spell effect. And in the smoke that is burning... Uh, the wizard has opened a window and is looking at the fighter and and what and whatnot that are fight the people that are fighting the dragon. Okay, so the first box set has this picture of them fighting a dragon. The second box set has a wizard looking at them fighting a dragon. Right. The fourth edition player's handbook has a dragonborn and what's probably a sorcerer or warlock on the cover walking into a cave and you're looking at them kind of head on the fourth edition dungeon master's guide has a dragon looking at a crystal ball and in the crystal ball is the image of the dragonborn and the warlock that are on the player's handbook sure does yep that is an homage i like it yeah that's a, that's a good catch there yeah, I like it too. I think it's it's a very nice callback. So, uh, so if you don't have these available to look at, I'm very sorry. I will post them in the show notes because Great. I already have an image set up for that. Ha ha. All right. So, I I I don't know what the over under is on whether it's going to take us a long time. Honestly, I could do a two hour episode on why page forty two is the best page in game running. Yeah, like it it is. It's it's still flawed because they had to reissue it in the DMG two, but but if you didn't have access to, to that page forty two is it's it that's it. It's good enough for unlimited use, right? Uh, on its own merits, that would that that elevates the book just so much. Um, if you did yourself a favor and you know photocopied and printed page forty two, you're set. Right, you can now run this game indefinitely on on the back of that knowledge. Like, I, I'm interested interested to, to hear how you and I approach it now because I'm not the same person I was when that book landed. Right, I've I've internalized it, but I've also forgotten it. And like, I'm running fifth ed, which isn't the same. Treasure is different. The the approach to everything is different. So figuring out everything that we can apply from both the fourth ed DMG and DMG two, like that's going to be good stuff. I'm excited. 
Yeah, I mean, I, it's been a while since I've actually looked at the the first the first DMG from 4E. Um, I suspect my perspective is also going to be different about it because I am also a sort of a different person. When I approached it the first time, I approached it in a very old school manner. Anyway, sure. Um, I didn't have any problem running fourth edition like kind of an old school style game. Yep. Uh, and so. To me, you know, there were, um, I was constantly railing against people who complained and bitched and, oh, fourth edition has no role playing and, oh, it's not D and D and, oh, it's not this and that and whatever. Because I could run it like AD and D even better than I could run third. And the reason was because of page 42. That's a really strong point. That's a really strong point. Um, I think that like, it's, it's fundamental contrast from, um, first ed AD and D is just survivability. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. past survivability sure. and resource management changes. Like, yeah, you can totally see how it would run like that. You know how you adjust that survivability? You don't let them play the the magic item arms race. For sure. You For don't sure. give them the expected magic item. Now, you can't do that whole cloth because then they'll just be decimated, right? But you can make it much more dangerous if you keep them behind on that. Harsh. Harsh. Yeah, really harsh. But it plays like first edition. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah. So anyway. So the uh, the design team for this book uh, was um, Rob Heinsu, Andy Collins, and uh, James Wyatt. So the thing about Rob Heinsu is him and Jonathan Tweet, as you know, went off after fourth edition and they wrote 13th Age. Thirteenth Age is very fourth edition-y. It's not exactly. It has a lot of different innovations and whatnot. It's not. It's not yeah, fourth edition. I really love what they did with feats. I really wish yeah. that fourth edition feats were more like Thirteenth Age feats. Right. So, and and they sort of recognized that that was something they wanted to change in their system, and so they did that. So, uh, yeah, Rob Heinzu, good designer. Um, you'll also note that the uh, the um, additional development uh, of the DMG has. Names like uh, Mike Merles, Stephen Radley McFarland, Peter Schaefer, and Stephen Schubert. Yep. None of those names should be surprising to anyone. Uh, no. Um, and then, of course, also there's a huge list of additional design and development. You know, fourth edition in uh, some of these books, they just had so many authors. But, you know, you've got people like Rich Baker, Greg Bilsland, Logan Bonner, Bart Carroll, Michelle Carter, Jennifer Clark Wilkes, Bruce Cordell, Jeremy Crawford, Jesse Decker. Right. I'm not going to name the whole thing. Chris Perkins is in there, Dave Noonan, right? Like there's, there's a lot, there's a Rodney Thompson, right? Like there's just a lot, there's a lot of great designers. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's very much a who's who of everyone who is remotely attached to, uh, Watsi in that whole era. So, so the book starts off with how to be a DM and it is interested in really working through a lot of the like, trials and tribulations of, the social dynamics of a table. And I really respect that. Um, I think this is actually the first DMG that has done that. Is that correct? Uh, it's certainly the first core book, like, like DMG one that's done it. Right. Yeah. Like we were just talking about the fact that the third at DMG two um, touches on a bunch of this stuff. Um, and this is the kind of thing that uh, like it's, it's using some of the material that, um, seems like it comes from um, Robin Law's um, Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it's not really a coincidence that Robin's going to wind up working on the the DMG two, DMG two, right. right? But 
that's one name missing from the DMG1 credits right. list. Yeah, considering that he did have some credits in the third at DMG2, if I recall correctly. But it, it's getting into like what your priorities are, what you need. They're taking a, a hard run at actually being an intro book. Um, and like the thing that makes it hard is just it's still a wall of text to try to get through um, as a first timer. Like if you're feeling daunted, I don't know what can actually re- reduce that feeling enough to get you engaged with the text, but um, right. it's trying. Well, and I, I got, I got to be honest also, I think the chapter is misnamed. Yeah. Okay. I think that chapter two actually should be called how to be a DM. Okay. And chapter one should be the theory of running a role-playing game. Interesting. Or considerations when you're thinking about being a DM. Right? Okay, sure. And that includes things like what kind of players are there and what are their motivations and how do you engage them and how, what do you have to be careful about and what kind of styles do dungeon masters have and what kind of games do you play and what kind of table rules will you set out to, to, to codify before you even start the campaign. Yeah. None of that actually tells you how to run a Dungeons and Dragons game. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Um, the first chapter has some fairly high-minded theory stuff um, mm-hmm. in terms of um, kinds of games in the, the pages on the Dungeon Master and things about style. I think that's, mm-hmm. in a good way, it's fairly high-minded stuff. Um, sure, sure. And talking about player motivations, like that's, that's all to the good. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you get to building a party, that's very drilled down to 4E. I would posit that that all that stuff you just mentioned should go later in this book. Okay. Uh, I guess. I think that I think it's okay in the first chapter, but I think you think they establish the premises quite enough to uh, discuss the high-minded stuff. As I said, like it, it's not really telling you how to be a DM. So, so if you change the name of this to you know, thinking about your table or considerations for your first game, right? That is not going to be your first chapter. Bit of an ap- academic title, wouldn't you say? I mean, okay, so you could wordsmith it and make it sound a little better, right? But it's but but because it, you know, look, look at chapter two, running the game. Chapter two is telling you how to be a DM. It is. I mean. Break it down far enough. The whole book is doing that. It's literally the point. Sure, but um, okay. But then, then, then I would say that then no single chapter should be named that. That's pretty fair, actually. Yeah. Um, no, I, I get what you're saying, and I mean you're not wrong. Um, uh, I guess I'm sort of more focused on the, the utility of individual tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and so what I'm saying though is, if you're a first-time DM and you're playing Fourth Edition, you, yep. you, and maybe you've played one or two games or something, and your your group wants you to be the DM, maybe you get this book for Christmas. You get the you get the three the the DMG, the PHB, and the Monster Manual for Christmas, right? The slipcase set, right? And you turn to this and you read the first chapter. The first chapter doesn't tell you anything about how yep. to actually be a DM. Yep. It tells you about 
as we said, more of the theory of what it means to sit down at a table with another group of people and try to f- create a game. Yep. Right. Together. And uh, that's, I'm not, you know, so here's the thing is I'm not knocking the information. I think it's a great chapter, right? The information in it is really good. It is a wall of text, right? You're right there. Um, but I think if, if a person has run games and never thought about this stuff or has run just a couple of games and hasn't really thought this deeply about this or is starting to have problems and hasn't really thought deeply about these things, maybe this would help them. But it certainly doesn't teach them how to run a game. Or how to be a DM. Whereas the second chapter kind of does. It talks about preparation, what what you should do if you have an hour to prep, or two hours, or three hours, or four to- four hours, or no hours, right? How to get started, how you might uh, do things differently at the table by delegating different tasks, um, how you how you should set up a game session and. You know, there should be exploration, there should be conversation, there should be an encounter. How do you pass the time? Uh, Here's how to narrate different types of situations. Uh, Here's how, you know, here's the importance of brevity. Here's some notes about atmosphere. Here's how to entice with the narrative. Here's how, you know, here's if you should worry about realism. Here's how to craft, you know, some suspense into your game using narrative. Uh, Then there's a whole section on pacing. Right. And then using props at your table. I mean, this uh, and look, then dispensing information. I mean, this chapter is just filled to the brim with stuff that tells you how to run fourth edition D&D. And I think each section does itself the favor of being, you know, anywhere from one paragraph to one page. And so it, it like avoids some of that wall of text thing. Mm-hmm. It's, right. Okay. I can. You know, right. find the one page that is the thing I want and digest right. that. It still has the wall of text, but if you're looking at a section and it's only one page, it doesn't feel so daunting. Right. That's that's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, no, I totally agree. And I and so I feel like either I don't know, meld these two chapters together and put the stuff that's in chapter one at the back of cha- of what is currently chapter two or yeah. something. I don't know. The information's all really good, though. This is actually, to me, the first chapter in a DMG of, of, of DMG one that really tells you, "Hey, if you're the DM, you're going to have to do some prep." Yep. Right. Here's how to do it. Here's what you should be doing while you do the prep. Here's how you deal with only having an hour to do it, or having two hours to do it, or only having three hours. Right. Here's what to do if you have no prep. Here's how to think about varying the the different types of interactions during the the session like it's it's good it's good stuff and you're right it is in the third edition dmg too but did anybody read that <laughs> i don't know right well I, I like to think we've given a little bit of a boost with our incredibly popular podcast <laughs> right listen right. to my uh millions certainly M- millions millions yeah, right. With, with the with the number of books that came out for third edition, I don't know that anybody. I could be totally wrong about this. I don't know, but I don't know that anybody was specifically looking forward to the DMG two. You know, and and like got it and devoured it up. By the time it came out, if you've been running third edition, eh, I, yeah. you know, yeah. I don't know. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So I was I, I was as a person who was coming back to the game 
after a short hiatus, but who has played for a very long time. Uh, I was impressed with the way that this DMG was, it's the start of it. The first 30 pages is really trying to speak to somebody about here's what you should be doing. If you're going to be the DM. Uh, that's fair. I mean, I, it's not the content I was looking for when I picked up the book. That's sure. not really surprising. I wasn't the audience for intro, right? Right. Like obviously, um, right. and it didn't have a lot of solutions to the problems that it poses that aren't, you know, um, as good as or slightly worse than what I had come up with on my own through right. just observing the social dynamic of my groups for all these years. That's mm-hmm. fine. It doesn't matter, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're, they're, you know, what to do when you have this many hours to prep is not my prep style. Right. Um, right. I've always sure. run highly improvisational games mm-hmm. and that's fine. It's just my deal. Uh, that's not what they're trying to teach you to do. Right. Right. The thing is though, like I agree with you and I'm the same way. I'm a high, I'm a highly improvisational DM, but the thing is that when you compare this, so the last DMG that I had read was the first edition DMG. And as we discussed in the first two days of this, this year's 12 days of Christmas, the first edition DMG does not teach you how to run the game. Right. It's a book of options and a book of knowledge and a book of lore and a book of here's some things you can use to help you run the game. And I expect you already know how to run the game and you already know what you're doing. And this is just stuff that might help you so that you don't have to go to the library and look it up yourself. Yep. Whereas this book is, Hey, you're a new DM. You don't know what the heck D and D really even is. Here's some food for thought. Yep. Here's some things to think about. And I like that approach for new DMs. You know, I, I feel uh, there was a um, the uh, player strategy guide for fourth edition. I'm totally going off the rails here, but uh, I was not supremely impressed with that book when it first came out. Um, and in fact, I think that's the first. Oh, here's some here's some tome show lore for you. That's the first episode I was ever on of the tome show, where I was a guest. Huh. We reviewed the player strategy guide. And I was a pretty harsh review of it. I had some bad things to say. And the response that I got from the other people on the episode, in great part, was, this is written for new players. This mm-hmm. isn't written for people who already know what they're doing. And when I take a look at the book now from that perspective, I completely – and at back then, too, I conceded that point and said, well, yeah, okay, but that's not my perspective that I'm coming from. So I'm giving you my perspective, right? But when you look back at that book, it does have a very different patina if you were new at the time it came out, right? And I'm saying the same thing here right now about this book. If you had only ever DM'd one session, or maybe you did an, you did D&D Encounters at your local game store a couple of times, yeah. and this is, this is the DMG, you're thinking, oh, the Dungeon Master's Guide, this is going to tell me what I need to know to run the game. This does it. The first edition DMG didn't do it. The second edition DMG didn't do it. And the third edition DMG didn't do it. All three of those books assumed you already knew what you were doing. They were not books for beginners. This book, at least the first 35 pages of it, is for beginners. Yep. 
I think that's a really good point. So, you know, how much merit that has or how, how much it is, is leads to a good, better book or a worse book, I think depends on your perspective. I'm not, I don't know. So uh, anyway, uh, I'll, uh, I'll get off my soapbox now. No, that's fine. <laughs> I, I like that uh, teaching the game is a single column. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. It, it's so funny that you give that short shrift because in so many groups, that's the DM's mm-hmm. responsibility. Like mm-hmm. they could write a whole other book on that and they'd be doing right. everyone a favor. They did in fairness, that's the player's handbook, but right. like really, <laughs> well, really, really breaking it down for here's how you teach this to someone else would be an interesting angle. I think that section, the fact that it's one column is the only, it's one of the only bad parts about this chapter. It could have used a two page spread. I think that's probably true, but I don't blame them because Having the DMG literally recapitulate the player's handbook is not actually great. Right. It's not. No, but that's the other problem with this column is it tells you things like hit points or how much damage you can take. Right. Right. Healing surges or how many times you can be healed in a day and how much you heal at a time. Okay. That's not how you're teaching somebody the game, right? Like that shouldn't be how you're teaching them the game. The how to teach the game should be a different set of information, right? Because like you said, they get that stuff from the PHB, so eh, whatever. Yep. Um, and, and like then we get into uh, you know combat encounters. Chapter 3 is all combat encounters. How to run a combat. And uh, this continues to be good, practical stuff. No, no, no real complaints. Um, like My issues with 4E aren't going to get solved here. There are things that I think 4E could have done better on making just the information load manageable. Um, mm-hmm. I think we've talked before about the fact that like in, in uh, Paragon level play, the modifiers just get a little much. Um, and also it gets a lot more so as you get into martial power, arcane power, players in book two, players in book three. Oh, have somebody play a rune priest with all the buffs and debuffs. Good Lord. That is specifically one of the classes. Yeah. I mean, thank you. Shaman is another. Oh. Right, um, mm-hmm. like it, it's a lot, and it slows down play a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, th- they're storing things like aquatic combat here, and that's good. Um, and honestly, like compared to other editions, this is very manageable. Right, uh, it's not a two-page spread on aquatic combat, um, and you have mounted combat and flying, and flying is um, one of the longer sections, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. of all of this, but it's still fairly manageable. And this is just um, giving you the sort of rules info for it's expanding on things that you already know from the PHB, but telling you maybe how you might adjudicate it or adjust it or think about it. It, it also, by the way, you skipped it, but the role initiative, it has a two page spread with a nice piece of art. Yeah. And it actually gives you three different, you know, three different suggestions on ways you can track initiative. Mm-hmm. Right. So it is trying to be practical. Yeah. Um, it's by no means an exhaustive list of here's all the different ways you could do these things or whatever, but it, it does make an attempt at least a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. Um, and then after flight, we get the disease rules and some example diseases. 
I man, when we first got the 4A DMG, we were really impressed with the handling of diseases. Yeah. And frankly, yeah. I'll stand by that. Yeah, me um, too. Definitely. The the multi-state thing is a really nice um alternative to a clock. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I like yeah. how you have, you know, four to five different states uh for each disease and you can shift between them based on passing and failing all these checks. That's just, it's great. So this is very reminiscent to me of the condition track in star Wars saga edition. Yep. And I will point out that Bill Slavisek, huge star Wars nerd and Rodney Thompson, also huge star Wars nerd. Both are probably responsible for this section and the poison section because they're very reminiscent of saga edition. And both of them headed up a lot of the, Saga edition material. So, nice. yeah, yeah, that, that I, was a rule set I wish I had gotten into and read more of at the time, but um, just didn't do yeah. it. Yeah, it did some things really, really well. That was my and that was my understanding, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and and it did some things not as well, <laughs> like any system, right? Sure. Um, but yeah, it was it was a nice iteration of it. In terms of D twenty, it was much better than the D the original D twenty Wizards of the Coast Star Wars system, the revised whatever they called it. Sure. But anyway, so then there is poisons, and that ends that chapter. And, and the poisons are fine, but they do highlight the like very tiered scaling of Fury. I don't I don't love that as much personally. Uh, adapting a bunch of these to. 5e would still be very doable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, for sure. Put all kinds of stuff from this on uh, the big list of 4e content to still bring into 5e. I, I mean, I really like the disease, that this disease stuff still blows me away. It's just so ele- elegantly done and so easy to to wrap my head around, right? And because they all work basically the same way, you don't have to think, oh, gee, does mummy rot? What does mummy rot do? And, oh, you know, how is that different from, you know, a rat bite, right? Rat, you know, the filth of whatever the filth disease is when you get a rat. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I still love the disease. I, I do remember everybody being blown away by how nice the disease system is in fourth edition. Um, yep. So, yeah, I'll still stand that for sure. Um, then... Our next chapter up is building encounters. Um, oh, you know what we did though. Oh, what did we do before we move on to that? We skipped page forty-two. The hell you say! I'm so sorry. I would never do that on purpose. <laughs> page okay, forty-two. <laughs> I've committed an egregious sin, and I will be fasting next year at Lent. <laughs> The, this is a major faux pas from you, sir. I am it is. I'm disappointed in me. Um, <laughs> so, okay. I'm just going to say page 42 of this book is the best piece of, of game tech in all of 4E. And the fact that this was only sort of brought into 5E and not really robustly brought into 5E is a truly unforced error. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. This is now this, this does get updated in the DMG two. I think on page 67 or 68, it does. There, there are but errors it, in the math here. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they're not you can't use this productively errors that they are this could be a little more correct errors right yeah. um, but what goes on here is that you've got um, suggested difficulty class values damage expressions and uh, such for easy moderate hard uh, low medium and high damage for normal or, or fairly steady damage sources and then limited damage expressions, things that can't happen all the time, like a daily power. Right. Right. Again, right. low, medium and high damage spreads. And then that's mm -hmm. broken into um, a bunch of different level bands, you know, bands of three levels each. Uh, so you're not going by tier, but uh, these little tiny three level mm -hmm. bands. And, this is absolutely amazing for like on the fly power creation, which, oh my God. Lest you think that this sounds really complicated and eye bleedy, like the um, class skill and cross skill table yeah. from third edition, this thing takes up less than a quarter of a page. But substantially less. Yeah. Th this is a, a compact, very readable table. Uh, yeah. It has two, um, like footnotes, you know, of additional modifiers mm -hmm. to take into consideration for skill checks and attacks with weapons or attacks against AC. Um, just that's it's great. Um, and this thing allows you basically to run D and D without a monster manual. I mean, that's that's a bold move with if you don't have hit points to work from. But all right. All right. Uh, okay, so you can house rule and add a column for hit points. Sure, yeah, yeah. I, I, and it's like imminently doable. I've done it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and the thing it's primarily trying to do is um, to let you build non-combat challenges of all kinds on the fly. Mm -hmm, you right. know, your traps, your whole skill challenge deal um, – Things where you don't have a ready a book readily available like the monster manual or right. two or three. It's here to help you resolve emergent content uh, crises, basically. Um, like if you don't know what's if you don't know what should happen, well, some dice should be rolled and the results. Right. Are, well, the, the results you need are going to be on this table. This mm -hmm. is absolutely great, um, and um, I I want to say. It might have been Kevin Culp uh, in in the Fury era who said that in addition to all of their like power cards that they had from uh, from classes and race and mm -hmm. so on, uh, yep. they added a do something cool card that was you know bust out a weird new stunt, right? And like, yes, that's absolutely the action movie aesthetic that Fury wants. Right. Right. Yep. Um, and just the, the benefits here for stunt building are unbelievable and greatly to be praised. Yeah, this, this is, this is the chart that makes DMing fourth edition as easy as possible. Yep. All right. Okay, so now we can go to the next chapter, which is building encounters. And this I will, begins. I'll pay 
27,500 soul to the guy in the bell tower in Dark Souls, and we will purge my sin. <laughs> yes, um, you owe me some Astral Diamonds. Anyway, uh, so this chapter begins with monster rolls, and this is something that was used in 4th edition to try to help the DM create dynamic encounters because since the, since combats were expected to be on a tactical battle mat now, granted they were expected to be that way in third edition too, but in fourth edition, it's extremely explicit about you should be using this. It's not optional. Right. All all distances are measured in squares. Right. And because of that, it would be, it's going to get boring if everybody just runs up and starts whacking on each other, right? With their swords and axes and hammers. Yep. Like that's going to get real boring real quick because then you're just playing a game where everybody's a, a, a sack of hit points and that's just not, bo- that's not fun. It's, it gets boring. Um, so different creatures have different roles, artillery, brute, controller, lurker, minion, skirmisher, soldier, um, and those roles tend to have different types of effects or attacks or abilities, yeah. right? So artillery, of course, is going to be a creature that can attack from range. A brute is going to generally hit hard and have a lot of hit points. A controller is going to try to move things around the battlefield. Uh, a lurker is going to hide and ambush attack you. Minions are uh, come in mobs, but they're very easy to kill, relatively speaking. Uh, skirmishers are going to be able to move in and attack. Mm-hmm. Soldiers are are going to be skilled at moving in and attacking, and they're probably not going to leave. Although they don't have as much as many hit points as brute, right? So you get the idea. These are specific types of monsters and uh, types of categories of uh, typical behavior, right? That are applied to monsters. And so if you look at a monster stat block, one of the first things it says under the name, the first line is going to tell you what role this monster has. Yep. And the reason that's helpful is because PCs also have roles. The classes have roles. Yep. And so you can you can combine different types of monster roles to provide a different type of challenge to your players. Yep based on what types of roles their PCs are. We tended to find, I think, that uh, lurkers were hard to use well. Uh, I don't know if you felt the same way about it, but uh, I felt like a lot of lurkers were were hard to use well just because Mm -hmm. even getting their second attack in a combat is by no means promised. Because combats are pretty short. Yeah, their abilities rely on hiding and surprising well once once they've attacked they they're not hiding anymore you know exactly where they are and they're right next to you so right and they have to spend time returning to a a hidden stance Mm -hmm. right Um, yeah they were difficult to use the way the way that i found to use them as we go off on another tangent was uh you have them attack in waves from different areas Yep. And you just assume you're going to have a lot of attrition because once the first wave attacks, those are all going to get completely decimated. Huh. And then right around that time, your second wave is attacking. And because you sort of treat it from the DM perspective, like, oh, this is just a short battle. Oh, wait, 
surprise, surprise, there's some more lurkers behind you, right? You add those to some artillery that are firing and getting everybody's attention from a different direction, you can kind of use them. Well, sure. Inflating fire will do that. That's that's bad. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But cool, cool, cool. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. Some of these roles are much easier to envision and make work than other ones, for sure. Uh, I mean, soldiers were always just there to dominate the field in, right. in our experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that a lot of people are still looking to 5e, expecting to see something like solo monsters, when even the best legendary is not doing what a solo did. Right. Right. Um, and I think that's one of the most discussed topics around 5e to me. Well, I think so. So one of the reasons that solos in fourth edition could do what they did was because they they were winning the arms race. Sure. Right. Because when, when you meet them, when the party meets them, they have won the arms race already and they are going to be a challenge. And that's the way it's set up. Whereas in fifth edition, because of bounded accuracy, the arms race is much reduced. And so a, a quote solo type of monster because of the bounded accuracy and the way the action economy works, any solo monster, I don't care how powerful it is. If the party wins initiative, that thing's toast. Uh, it provide, provided they're of a of a good enough level that they can even hit the thing and, and that it's an actual challenge, right? Right. Now, if if a if a CR thirty creature comes down and starts attacking, oh, sure. you know, a third level party, no, of course not, because they can't even hit the thing. Right. Right. I, but I, mean, I think that like taking a page from uh, Matt Mercer on this and doubling tripling, quadrupling hit points. Um, That can still really work without getting to a grindy state just Mm -hmm. because this monster has a lot of different tricks. It's meant to have a lot of different tricks. Right. Right. It's going to do that. And that can be really, really satisfying. Yeah. But that's that's part of how solos worked also. In addition to serious defenses, uh, they had a, a bloodied state change that was going mm-hmm. to probably make them tougher, and they had just phenomenal numbers of hit points compared to everything else. Right. They, they were literally built in the math to fight four PCs. Right. And if you made them basically immune to any kind of dominate um, or uh, stun effect, or what's the other one that was so hard to deal with? Uh, stun was a mess. Stun was a mess. It's it's dominate, dazed, and stunned. Really, if if the players could lock down, if the PCs could lock down that creature in fourth edition, the the monsters toast no matter what because they're they're just locked down. They literally can do nothing. Yep. Well, and you know the the monsters have the solos have these huge bonuses mm-hmm. to their saving throws, right? Right. To, to purge yep. these conditions, it's just still not enough because. Right. Uh, PCs, especially PC wizards, get all these magic items that impose these horrible penalties to saving throws, mm-hmm. right? And so that just it really adds up. So, so the encounter components like experience point rewards, target encounter XP totals. This is all very familiar from mm-hmm. uh, third ed and fifth ed, right? If you've 
they aren't the same, but you can see the through line. Um, and it talks about, you know, targeting counter XP by number of PCs. Um, there's advice in this book for parties smaller than four players, but a lot of it can be summed up as uh, try not to <laughs> do, do that. <laughs> yeah. You really want four players. The game is playable when you're missing a roll, but things start falling apart fast. Um, and the way combat works, you just don't want to do that. Um, oh, right. The, the next page after that, Encounter Templates, is another of the really great pieces of uh, yep. of Fury. Um, it's talking about ways to combine dissimilar creatures of of, of different levels, mm-hmm. you know, CRs basically, uh, to good effect. And, and it's it splits them into uh, like a battlefield control. If you want an encounter where the enemy group is all about battlefield control, here's how you put those together. If you if you want something that is like a wolf pack, here's how you put those together, right? Something that, w- in other words, a pack that works together. You know what I'm saying? To hunt to hunt the PCs, right? Yeah. Uh, Commander and troops, Dragon's Den, Double Line. Those are great models. And mm-hmm. um, bringing them into 5e would require some backing off and doing the math. But that's about it. Um, but, boy, like, creatures having different powers is so good for mm-hmm. turning... The, the tactical like situation into something much more demanding on the players. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so I, I guess for me, it's not so much about the math here that you, cause you would have to translate the math into fifth edition style right. math. Right. But for me, the beauty of this section is just the idea of here's how, ha- you know, here's what, here's why, Here's how to set up a battlefield control. Here's how to set up a double line attack. Yeah, sure. Here's how to set up right, and then then for fifth edition, you have to just go pick the the creatures based on you know your knowledge of their their abilities and whatnot. Right. But um, you know, if you're not a very tactically minded person or you you you're not used to this thinking in this way, this is very helpful in terms of just structuring how would a creature group be composed. Right? How do you compose that creature group so that it provides a certain type of challenge? Right? It's not just about the creature roles; it's about how they all interact with each other as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, that like, intro to useful tabletop tactics, mm-hmm. uh, very quick hit paragraph kind of thing they've got going on here is just really nice. And yep. I love that a lot of these encounter models are going to actually get use cases in all of the monster manuals of fourth ed. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. so nice. Uh, yeah. it, it wasn't always easy, you know, again, I'm, I'm, as an improv DM, it isn't always easy to say to yourself, okay, here's the situation I'm in. Um, I know that this type of creature is present because of what I've established in the story. What other thing also needs to be present for me to build a cool encounter here? Well, 
the lore isn't always enough help um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because I, I may not, um, you know, if the base controller, base creature that I have is a controller, am I going to have the right kind of contrasting creature type if I just follow the lore? Maybe it's not a promise. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. Uh, but anyway, this section is really, really good, and it's you know, still worth studying and mm-hmm. giving some deep thought to. Um, and honestly, the, the chapter just keeps getting better from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, encounter <laughs> settings uh, is a little a little bit dry as an explanation, but it's talking about making the the, the field of battle interesting and mm-hmm. a lot of the different tricks to doing that. Blocking terrain, challenging terrain, hindering terrain, obscured terrain. Um, and th- these are great. Uh, challenging terrain is all about making you use your skills in the middle of combat. You have to have skill rules to go where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, Terrain with cover, terrain and rolls. Uh, right, so here they actually combine the idea of the different monster rolls, and they they tell you in a descriptive format. Right, this is this is this is the writer talking to the person who's going to be the DM. Hey, here's how a lurker. Here's the type of environment a lurker best works in. Here's the type of environment that brutes and soldiers are good at. Here's the type of environment that controllers can put to good use. Yep. Um, which is helpful if you're not familiar with the roles. Yeah, and I mean thinking through those enough to come to the come to good answers on your own is definitely not something everyone is prepared to do. Right. Um, and you know, frankly, a lot of DMs that I could name, uh, didn't like engage in the, I'll include me, no problem. I'll include me. Um, didn't engage in the prep work enough to like have all of this in the back of their mind in a really practical way when they were drawing a battle map and picking creatures and placing creatures. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But like this, this section again is worth just hammering into your head and like trying to make it instinctive, if, especially if you're jamming for E. But I'm gonna say that if you can, you know, take that step to thinking about creatures in terms of their roles in Five E, which it, it's good if you can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, then this turns really, really helpful again. Um, and then it talks about encounter scripts. I, I don't necessarily know that this is as useful for as many things as they hope it will be, but it, it amounts to just spend some time imagining how your party usually reacts and spend some, some time imagining what the monsters do about that. Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel like the worst part about this section is that name, building an encounter script, because yep. it it immediately invokes this idea. Of, oh, I'm writing down what each creature's doing every turn. No, no, that's not really what it wants you to do. Right. It, what it wants you to do is think about the creatures as right. AIs that are trying to react to new stimulus. Exactly. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, you know, eh, that section's okay. So we move into uh, 
sample mundane terrain. Uh, this is already great. Like, I think that a lot of us don't do enough to sort of describe the set dressing mm-hmm. and um, improving the described space and the, the shared imagination space of encounters. It's so good and so important. And um, we should talk about it more. Well, so one of the things that fourth edition falls down on, which is a good thing and a bad thing at the same time, is because it was a a system reliant on the battle map and reliant on tokens or miniatures or something to denote positioning, because it absolutely required that for 99.9% of games... Uh-huh. Right, um, they produced beautiful dungeon tiles and maps and miniatures and pogs and tokens and just there is a plethora of really really well done stuff out there to use. But here's the problem with that: the problem is when that stuff gets slapped onto the table. Yep, that's what everybody's looking at. So if if the dungeon tile has a bookcase on it. There's a bookcase in that room. And if it has, you know, a table on it with paperwork strewn about, that's in the room. And as a DM myself, and I fell into this, uh, I would stop describing everything, right? There's no need for me to describe the size of the room and the illumination and the height of the ceiling and, and what kind of furniture is in there because they can see it right on the map. Yeah. So I stopped. I stopped doing that in large part, Um, and that's that's an issue. And I I know that's a me issue, right? But and I've I've once I realized that's what was happening, I was like, oh, I need to stop that because I'm from way back. And in first edition, we didn't have any pretty battle maps, right? Like everything was about the description. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know how you lived before Chessex. I just that's just that's a foreign (laughs) country. Uh, You make your own graph paper using lined paper. To be honest, (laughs) there's um, yeah, Um, but yeah. So so um, so I like this section because it assumes that you're still going to narrate a description of things in the room that the PCs might interact with. And even though this is quite mechanical, it gives you different break and climb DCs and different object properties and material compositions and all that kind of stuff. But it's still, its basic premise is you're describing this terrain to the players so that their PCs can interact with it in some way. Yeah. Well, and boy, that sidebar, improvised terrain effects. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's one tiny little sidebar that is going to turn into a whole section in the DMG2 right. uh, called Terrain Powers. Mm-hmm. And friends, it is hot. Right. It is so yep. good. It is using your environment to beat the snot out of your enemies. And who doesn't love that, I ask you. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, yeah. is, this is why page 42 is important. This mm-hmm. sidebar right here is all about why page 42 is important. It yep. mentions it by name. You know, that's where we are. Yeah, um, exactly. And we get a bunch of standard, you know, physical terrains. Um, it reminds me of 
when we went through uh, players option combat and tactics last year, mm-hmm. uh, it, which talks about a lot of the same kind of terrain stuff, but right. in, a, in a much more, um, I guess, descriptive way rather than here are the immediate tactical effects of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are some pages of this that run into that same effect that I was that I bemoaned in the, in the third edition books of, Oh yeah, well it's a paragraph, but it's one sentence of description. And then the rest of it is, if this happens, it's a plus two bonus. And if they try to do this, it's a plus four bonus. And if, you know, and this kind of runs into that, it's a little, you know, all, all of that sort of rule minutia hooty who that I, that I don't necessarily want to read yep. in a paragraph is is here for some of this too. It's not quite as bad as the third edition stuff, but it's bad enough. It is. Um, and flipping through your book to make good practical use of this in the middle of like, working out the scene, you're not going to do that. It's go- right. it's absolutely got to be on a DM screen or it's just not going to be used, period. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, yep. I, I yep. don't know how much of this even was put on the 4A DM screens because I do not have them in front of me. Um, not, uh, a lot, <laughs> not any of it. Probably. Let me, let me find out. This is the revised one that came out in 2011. Cool. It has all the conditions, uh, healing and death and dying on one panel. Then it has difficulty class by level DCs for commonly used skills. And it lists all the skills and what the action, like it lists them, you know, by activity. So, you know, it's not just arcana skill, blah, blah, blah. It's perception. And then there's a list of 15 different things you or situations that you could be using perception in. Uh, then it has skill challenge complexity, uh, free action, standard action, move action, minor action, uh, DCs to break or burst common items, knowledge skills by origin, monster knowledge DCs, damage by level, food and drink and lodging, terrain and travel, which is just a wilderness distance multiplier based on conditions. Uh, base exploration speed, attack roll modifiers, experience point rewards. That's it. So nothing about terrain really, and not even the, not even really the the page forty two chart. Although it's kind of on here with the damage by level chart, but that it's uh, definitely not the same. Well, so that, no, that's a, that's a real no. error. That's that's just <laughs> that's an a error. real error. Yes. So yeah, so so uh, that that DM screen could, that's the updated one. Um, yeah, I don't remember what was on the original one, but uh, so it it could have used some work. <laughs> yeah, um, they, they all could. It's just yeah. effective life. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a very limited amount of space and a lot of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I'm going to start talking about the sample fantastic terrain because friends, it is fantastic in both senses of the word. Uh, this is this is just stuff that is not natural and is here to spice up your, your your terrain with you know minor to moderate magical effects uh blood rock cave slime choke frost cloud spore and you know um it really strongly influences the tone of all of fourth edition that this is here mm-hmm. uh yep like there's there are magical changes to the terrain the 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 the, the ground in front of you is weird in all of these spaces. And that's just your life. It's going to be true in a lot of your encounters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, 
walking into the middle of a new large room and seeing a bunch of um, medkits sprawled around. There's going to be a boss fight here. I, I'm just betting. Uh, well, if you see a bunch of um, like grasping slime or a font of power, mm, I bet there's a fighter around here somewhere. Just going to say, <laughs> feeling a little prepped. <laughs> yeah. That's yep. maybe a little unfair, but um, also it's pretty fair. Uh, it, it might be a little unfair if you haven't run 4th edition to immediately jump to that conclusion, but r- having run it, that's exactly what what yeah. the, the mindset is. So yeah, the sample Fantastic Terrain is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's a good amount of it for variety here. You're going to see stuff recur, but it's not going to necessarily be two or three fights in a row unless you want it to be. Um, theming a region like that is totally fine, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be that way. And then in later books, there's going to be a lot more. Right. Um, like Dark Sun adds just a ton. And mm-hmm. I want to say the DMG2 adds a, a pretty healthy amount. Um, but this is great, great stuff for just spicing up an encounter area and, you know, making sure there's something really interesting to interact with does so much to fix that thing in memory as a player. Mm-hmm. It's just great. Yeah. And there is a through line from this right here through the rest of fourth edition and right into Tasha's cauldron of everything for fifth edition. For sure. Yes. Where there is, you know, whole page spreads on fantastic terrain and theming. Right. But so. that fantastic terrain is much more driven toward exploration than to combat. Sure, absolutely, yeah. And, I agree. and th- that's fascinating in itself, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I, right. W- what a move! Um, but the, like t- terrain powers and fantastic terrain are some of my favorite stuff from all the fourth edition mm-hmm. because of how they make you think about space and yeah. and yep. how they set tone. Well, and so I don't know if you remember, but the Madness at Gardmore Abbey adventure for fourth edition, it had the deck of many things in it. And um, it's the only deck of many things in any edition of D&D that is different from all the other ones. And the deck of many things in the Madness at Gardmore Abbey, what it did was, uh, so the, the story is a whole thing about somebody collecting the cards and whatnot. But basically, if you had one, Right. Instead of producing an effect like you would see in first edition D and D, what would happen is it would allow you to have an effect in combat. And some of the effects, if I'm remembering correctly, were basically ter- they were they were basically modeled on terrain effects. And so it allowed for a really dynamic use of that card during combat. So it was a pretty interesting implementation of this same type of idea, but with a different you know uh, trigger basically. So very cool. So, so we're ready to move on to chapter five. Yep. Okay. So chapter five is non-combat encounters. So I want to call out the art first thing. Sure. The, the two-page spread or page and a half spread or whatever uh, is basically a tiefling, a thief, and uh, probably thief, and a, a, a dwarven fighter or possibly cleric uh, running from the giant rolling ball from Indiana Jones. <laughs> Yep. And I'm sure those uh, 
dragon mouths right beside them are not going to make things harder. Oh, no, of course not. Because <laughs> we literally see arrows flying out of them. Yes, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, anyway, so I, I just... Uh, th- there are uh, several pieces of 4th edition art that I'm just not a fan of. But in in... At the same time, in several of them, they they do this kind of homage type yep. item like this one, and I just get a kick out of it. It's it's pretty well done. The perspective is is hard to do on a on a piece like this, and it's pre- pretty well done. There are some very good pieces uh, mm-hmm. along the way. It isn't all winners, but right. there's some very good pieces. Yep. So, so oh man, we are we are in it in terms of what this book is bringing to the table. Yep. Like th- this is like, like we we've had some really big chapters already because mm-hmm. page forty two and terrain and all this, but man, skill challenges. Like, yep. I-, I think that for really a lot of people who ever read four e and cared for it in the slightest, and then moved to five e, this is still their their white whale of something to really functionally bring forward mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the irony being Forey never got right either right <laughs> yes right? exactly Th- yeah this stuff is hard um mm-hmm. i've i mean speaking just for myself i have spent hundreds of hours since uh you know 2008 uh really Starting most in 2010 when I when I started Harbinger of Doom, mm-hmm. thinking about what's wrong with skill challenges and what it would take to tune them up, and I mean, I in all seriousness, we should set aside a whole episode to just talk about that because we probably should, yeah, because I, I love this topic, I care about it deeply. I have seen a game. Um, at Metatopia um, last year, Rabbit and I went to Metatopia, and one of the games we played, um, I'm horrified that I can't think of the name right now, but it was kind of retro cloning for e-skill challenges as its as the core of its play. Okay, it was like very consciously for e. Man, I mm-hmm. love for e, but I want to make skill challenges the core of play, and right. it was a fascinating experience. I mean, uh, really, really well done. Um, just a fascinating experience to see someone even try. And right. the the short version is they added really a lot more data tracking. Mm, okay. Um, it, it's not like eight successes before three, before three failures and that's it or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. lot more intensive. And it was like, it, it hit the mark. They they had enough stuff going on, enough different forms of failure uh, that it didn't need to just be three failures and you're out. Right. It was, well, which failure are you risking when you roll this thing? There's all these different failure clocks. Okay. Okay. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to spend two more hours discussing this because I so, yeah. we could. So let me, let me just say for the audience, if you've never played fourth edition, a skill challenge is an attempt to put a mechanical framework 
on using skills in a complex situation. In other words, something that requires more than one role, right? Like if you're just climbing a wall, you can probably do that with one role, not a big deal. But in a complex situation where the entire party is involved and the consequences could be extreme, you need more than one role. And this this setup attempts to put a mechanical framework on that that fits within the system of 4E and the D20 system in a way that tries to make sense of how to combine everything that everyone is doing into that situation and making it all matter. Uh, Fourth edition got a lot of flack for this because people said people critiquing this uh, said that this takes away any ability to role play because you're now putting the mechanical framework on something that should mostly be role played. And that's a conversation for a different podcast, right? Whether it's for a different episode of this podcast or whether it's a different podcast altogether is whatever, but I'm just telling you what this actually is. And unfortunately, even though when you read, you know, I remember reading through this and thinking, oh, yeah, this makes total sense. This makes a lot of sense. I like their examples, you know, whatever. Um, but it's just not presented very well in, in this particular DMG. It, it gets a much better presentation in the Essentials DMs guide. Hmm. Okay. Um, but still, they never quite got it exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm convinced that the presentation was on purpose. They presented it in a way that makes it uh, similar to how the other rules in the game are presented because they wanted cohesiveness, and that actually doesn't do it any favors. So that's part for me. That's I think part of why it kind of fell flat for a lot of people. I don't necessarily think we need to talk any more about it. the The chapter has a lot of examples and. They're pretty good, and we can move on. <laughs> right. Like, I, I do really want to talk at some point about why the system that, that is here uh, falters. It has a lot to do with number of failures before mm-hmm. the whole situation yeah. fails. It also yeah. has to do with aid and other. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, the help action kind right. of thing. Yeah. Um, but, man, it's a lot. Uh, the yeah. examples here are great. They're really great. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that, like, it's just like expanding this into stuff you can use for all the different situations in your campaign. Ooh, that ooh, that's hard. That's all. Well, so so let me t- let's just say the names of the samples. There's a yeah. negotiation where you're negotiating with uh, some kind of royal person, right? Yeah, it's a classic. There's uh, a dead witness. They call it the dead witness. So uh, this is, um, you know, you're 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 basically you cast speak with dead, and you're trying to convince you're trying to convince an unwilling, basically unwilling or unknowing participant to provide you with information. Okay, there's an urban chase. There's an interrogation, not with a dead person this time. Yep. There's being lost in the wilderness, trying to find your way. There's discovering uh, secret knowledge. Uh, basically researching something. And then there is a sample of how to use a skill challenge during a combat encounter. 
Yep. The idea was for these to be broadly applicable, like like you said, you know, to to pull them out and be able to uh, use the skill challenge uh, creation guidelines to take similar situations and you know and make a skill challenge out of it. I'm not sure it's successful at all of that, um, but but that's what it is. It, it it makes a good attempt. I'm not sure it's successful. Yep. Yep. And then, and then the chapter moves. If you're ready to move on, <laughs> I, I am. Yeah, I, with the understanding that someday we'll give this a lot more time. But yes, I, I agree. We should revisit this. So then we get to puzzles. So, so puzzles. Um, there's a lot of different kinds of puzzles, and they're going to talk about how to use them well. Um, like this is a really divisive topic in games. Um, my friend Colin has been doing really, really good stuff with um, uh, Towers of Hanoi puzzles and uh, Sudoku puzzles at the table in our online game. And uh, I really admire how he's done that. It's been the kind of thing in a lot of cases that we can futz with for a while and leave and come back to. And because it's just a matter of changing, changing another page in Roll20, mm-hmm. his life is pretty easy. Right, harder in face-to-face play. Right, and so so the reason this is such a divisive topic is because the question is, um, are you relying on player knowledge more than you're relying on PC knowledge? And what if you're playing the the intelligence score of five barbarian? How do you participate in this? Even if you're a relatively intelligent person in real life, you might look at that Sudoku puzzle and be like oh yeah I, I can do those i'm good at those but would your character be good at those and so this becomes this discussion of player versus character and how you adjudicate that that's why it's divisive i'm not saying we should talk yeah. about that but i'm just well so so we don't have to go into this but i will state my my strong biases one i like puzzles two mm-hmm. uh the game's here to be fun mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's it that's the tweet Right. Um, I think that uh, arguments around I'm playing the low intelligence character um, deal too much in quantifying intelligence along a single axis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is not my experience of how intelligence works. Right. Um, yep, that's how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. We can move on. Unless you want to argue with me, which you're certainly no, willing to do. No, I, I don't. I, in fact, I have an example of a fourth edition game where I did, and this is why I said the low intelligence barbarian, because I had a, a half orc barbarian in my one of my fourth edition campaigns where the player was just whip smart, one of the smartest people I know. Yep. And she was like, and we had several puzzles or, or riddles or whatever in the, in the game. And she looked at me after the, the first one, she looked at me and she's like, how do I, how do I do this? Like, I don't, I, I know the, I can already tell. I know the, I could figure that out. She's like, but my, I don't think my character could. And I, I said to her, well, your character might not be able to figure it out the way that you just figured it out. Like your logical mind helped you figure out the solution to that based on whatever factors go into that. Perhaps your character can do those types of puzzles because of something in their past. Or perhaps what you could do is act like you don't really know the answer, but you 
unintentionally say something that gives them the answer. And then it's not your character suddenly having a ton of intelligence that you think would be not matching what your character is. But instead, it's just this sort of serendipitous dumb luck phrasing that your character did that gives them the clue that helps them solve. You know, there are ways around that idea of what does intelligence mean? Like, we don't even need to discuss that because it's too varied. We can't, we can't discuss it. The experts don't even know. And if anybody tells you that they do, they're full of Yep. Right. So that's, yeah, we don't need to discuss that part. But my point is only just that it is a divisive subject, but like there's so many ways around it. I I feel like the people who really push back on it are just they're either not comfortable, you know, creating puzzles they think other people they, they I, I I don't know. I, I don't know what the impetus is for why people push back on it, but there's so many ways around it. Just be creative and you can find a way around any anything having to do with a puzzle that allows all the players to be involved. Yep. I promise you, you can be creative and let all the players be involved. Uh, anyway, so we can move on. <laughs> well, I, I do want to mention one other absolutely great puzzle that my friend Colin put into game. Absolutely. Uh, he, he had us all put the Space Team app on our phones and play it as the puzzle. What is the Space Team app? So, so, so Space Team is a, a cooperative game of communication that you play on your phone. Um, okay. And so like, one person's phone will be telling them what they need, but that the, the com- command for that is on someone else's phone. Okay. <laughs> so, so you're all like, at, you're all like the bridge crew of a, uh, a starship, mm-hmm. right? And you're trying to cooperate to keep the thing going. And it's an absolute cluster <laughs> It's amazing and wonderful. It's so funny. Yeah. And we had a Kenku in the party. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that went great. And by great, I mean we lost really bad. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Anyway, Very um, I, I am pro puzzle. That's, that's, that's that. Yeah. So Traps and Hazards is next. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, – when we went through the uh, third ad DMG, I talked about the fact that um, that DMG just taps out on traps at level 10. Mm-hmm. They just kind of mm-hmm. say, you know what? We can't really challenge you with traps anymore. Go, go with God. There are no more traps. Right. And the 4 DMG just utterly rejects that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I love that. I, I'm much happier with, yeah, we came up with some, Really wild, weird death traps to throw at you at high level. Great. Yeah. Soul gems and spheres of annihilation. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, yeah. I mean, a cave in at 13th level, spectral tendrils, mm-hmm. um, symbol of suffering. And, you know, <laughs> the symbol of suffering, well, like, other than literally being of suffering rather than of stunning or whatever. Mm-hmm. Symbol mm-hmm. is just a spell in third and fifth and second for that matter, probably right. first. Um, like a trap? Well, it's just a spell that you resolve. Of course, you can have that in third ed. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but they're they're going to hugely expand all the list of traps and such in other books also, and right. I'm here for it every time. Like and. 
put that right in my veins, please. Thank you. Yeah. So I'll make the same critique of this as I made of the third edition book as well now. Okay. And that is that there are uh, two, four, six, eight, seven pages okay. of just traps. Sure. And so it's all just mechanical. Here's traps. So if you're not playing fourth edition and you're not interested in converting any of these, and you don't really care about traps, this is seven wasted pages. Now, I will say that, you know, if you bought this book when you were playing 4th edition, you were playing 4th edition, so, you know, it's helpful. And I, I, I used these traps extensively and made my own based on these traps when I was running 4th edition. Um, but because I made the critique in the 3rd edition book that, hey, these pages are meaningless to me because I'm not playing 3rd edition and they're just lists of traps and also they don't go past 10th level, like some of that critique can be levied at this book too. That, eh, if I don't care about these, then eh, it's not useful to me. So, just to be fair, you know. Uh, I mean... If you don't care about traps, traps content is not good for you. That's okay. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just, well, I mean, but I do, I, I, it's funny because I can tolerate this trap section in fourth, in the fourth edition, well, but in the third edition, this, book, is, I just kinda, this yeah. is much more visually appealing. Right. By, by for sure. measure. Yeah. Um, and thinking about how the narrative is getting presented is cleaner. Right. Mm-hmm. It is yeah, sure. purely, Oh, some bigger numbers would be nice. This is, this is more kinetic, mm-hmm. right? It, yeah, yeah. I, I'm much fonder of this model of trap. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, they're all little skill challenges, right? Yeah. Right? It's just that instead of you fail when you roll this many failures, it's while well, you're taking damage every time. So good mm-hmm. luck with that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and it, this is really unmistakably the predecessor of complex traps and Xanathar's. Sure. Absolutely. Like, yep. Hundred percent. The format is pretty similar. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty. It's pretty amazing how many things in fifth edition are just cloaked, slightly tweaked fourth edition things. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you saw Jeremy Crawford's name in the uh, design team list. Uh, might come up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, um, anyway, so chapter six adventures. Um, in some ways, this is going to wind up recapitulating some of the you know practical stuff from earlier because mm-hmm. this is a, a different form of like rubber meets the road right. on yep. everything they've taught you up to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, right, but it's see, also I feel like a structure the, of plot. Right, the first chapter. What's in the first chapter could be at the beginning of this chapter. That's probably fair. Right. Because this is so, but you know, but you'd have to change the chapter name. But anyway, so let's let's keep going. Um, yeah, so it really is when the rubber meets the road chapter. It talks about you know how to make simple fixes for slight problems, how to hook the players in the PCs, um, what happens when they go off course, what happens you know uh, if something is a cakewalk, you know, is that really a problem, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then it gets to the sort of meat and potatoes of it, which is building an actual adventure. So this is not building an encounter that was in a previous chapter. This is building an adventure and yeah. talking about the structure of an adventure, what makes a good structure, what makes a poor structure, um, quests, major quests, minor quests, how to design a quest, uh, gives a list of basic uh, quest seeds. 
And then it gets to more encounters type stuff where it talks about adjusting difficulty and okay. so I'm incredibly charmed by the little sidebar on quest cards. Um, <laughs> yeah. There was, so when we were running uh, our LARP um, years ago, there was a, a first time player, God bless him, who hadn't ever really LARPed before and um, wanted to understand how quests worked. And I mean, this is not as obvious if you've never done any buffer LARPing before, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. he was really expecting to be handed a piece of paper with a quest on it that <laughs> he would be able to hand in when he checked it off. And then we, we had these, we, yeah, we had these guild contracts for crafters to fulfill buy orders. Right. Right. Which literally were that, and he was so happy. <laughs> but it was so perplexing to us because, like, as a thing to want, that's not how, like, goals in the completion thereof flow at all. Right. It's, it's a much more naturalistic uh, flow, right? Yeah. You would yeah, just tell the sure. NPC you've done the thing, I guess. And <laughs> if they reward you, then cool. But there's there's no like meta mechanic to it at all. Right. And it just, it just charmed me. And this, it made me think of this. Like I, I want to emphasize, I don't think he was stupid for thinking that it, it was the kind of newbie question that we had never considered because like none of us had been newbies at a, in a really long time. Right. Right. But, um, it's something like a quest card to help PCs manage all of the little goals they decided they care about and who they need to return to for reward. That is mm-hmm. not a bad idea. N- not at all. Oh, yeah. In a tabletop game, especially if you only play once a month or even less often than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or if you have a game where there is a crap ton of lore and clues and everything. Yeah, not like, that either of us would ever run that set. Yeah, not, like, yeah, exactly. No, I've never, ever, ever done that. Um, Uh, (laughs) yeah so quest go to calport (laughs) 10 20 25 sessions later (laughs) so funny (laughs) um anyway (laughs) literally the through line of the whole campaign yeah no kidding well, and then it was then w- before they left, they picked up a bag of mail to take there or something. So it's been yeah. twenty five sessions. <laughs> Funny, so good. Uh, anyway, uh, so encounter mix. So now we get back into the to the nitty gritty meat and potatoes uh, yep. for a couple of pages where we talk about difficulty and adding traps and hazards and rem- reminder about player motivations. You know, um, and of course a big reminder to just have fun. Uh, so this this two page spread is kind of trying to bring everything from all the previous chapters into the planning and adventure chapter, which is a, a decent way to call back to some of the things that have been stated already. Yep. Um, and then we get to adventure setting. Yep. And I I read this and I think of how this two page spread gets just wildly expanded into um, 
the plane above and uh, well, planes above and planes below mm-hmm. books, yeah. and those are really phenomenal books. I don't mm-hmm. know if you have looked at them recently, but when I was doing my four E mega thread, let me tell mm-hmm. you, those books were heavily mined because they are yeah. outstanding. Yeah, uh, but yeah. like th- just that, like two paragraphs on planar. Well, mm-hmm. that that is the deal. And then Civilized, right. well, that's the Neverwinter book, which is also gold. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, man, yep. that is a good book. Yep. Like, I don't even care about the realms or Neverwinter that much, but that book is really good. It's it's a very, very good campaign book. Chock full of, of hooks and ideas on every single page. Yep. So yeah. many different character stories mm-hmm. and suggestion, mm-hmm. suggestions on how to – like hook characters into everything. Love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, Underground is also going to get its book. A book is called Menzo Bronson. Um, uh, also, there's the uh, there's also the Underdark book, and then there's the yep. uh, the uh, Into the Unknown. Yeah, Into the Unknown, the Dungeon Survival Handbook. Nice, nice. Um, so Underground gets quite a bit of love in in Fourth Edition. Good, uh, good, good. That that content though is a little bit more hit and miss okay. compared to something like Neverwinter. Sure. Um, now the Menzo Bronzo well, book. Not everything have, is going to be like actual astral diamonds just sitting on the page. Right. So the Menzo Bronzo book was, uh, I think, right after Neverwinter. So they used a lot of what they had learned up until then because those are some some of the two last books from Fourth Edition, and so. That's the, one of the reasons why I sort of lamented the end of fourth edition was what they were producing at the end was so good. They had learned sure. all their lessons about good design for this system, and they were finally putting it to use, right? With Madness at Gardmore Abbey, with the the Adventures in the Essentials kit, the, the Reavers of Harkenwold Adventure in the Essentials, the, the uh, what was it, the Monster, whatever, Monster Vault. I think that was, the, or maybe that one had the winter. Ca- anyway, the Reavers of Harkenwold. Oh, it was in the DMs kit. That adventure is a wonderful adventure. So so good. The Madison Garmore Abbey box set. So so good. Um, the the Neverwinter and Menzo Branson book. So good. And then they ended. <laughs> yep. So it's it's sad, but those books are sort of these shiny lights. Oh in, yeah. You know, putting together all of this stuff from the DMG one and two, and just throwing it into that book. Oh yeah, I mean, if you if you go back through that that mega thread or the, the document you were kind enough to compile out of it, mm-hmm. you will see that it absolutely reflects every word you just said. Anyway, so back to this particular book. <laughs> um, <laughs> then we get setting personality. So basically, they're talking about themes, right? Yep. Um, and a lot of the rest of this section is getting back into really practical advice mm-hmm. that probably you only need to read about once. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yep. It's it's good stuff if you don't already know it. Um, it's not blowing the doors off of anything for anyone who's run a campaign or two. Um, mm-hmm. So so I feel like probably we can skip through it pretty quickly, but. If you need a just a, a primer, yeah. I feel like this uh, this little section here under setting details, though it gets it kind of has this interesting page, page one eleven, where it has 
it has buildings you might find in a city in four different or five different charts, and it separates them into interesting sites in a city, fantastic flavor in a city, and then upscale trades and services, average trades and services, and poor trades. And like the, this, these five tables right here, you could build a little town. Yep. With uh, no problem. Well, and the, the funny thing about um, the trades and services bits is – Finally, we see something in this book that truly resembles the second Ed DMG. <laughs> and the first Ed. And the first Ed. Uh, yep. It talks about an almshouse and a miller and a tanner and a fuller and you know a brickmaker and a bank and a jeweler and a scribe. And yeah, no, exactly. Yep. <laughs> Finally, on page 111. <laughs> a, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. <laughs> That's right. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think we can sort of fast forward through the rest of this chapter. Uh, mapping notation uh, is always fun to see. It hasn't really mm-hmm. changed in nope. um, 40 <laughs> years. Um, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, um, outdoor settings and event-based adventures. Oh, cast of characters. Here's where they talk about allies and patrons and enemies. What this is missing is random tables to generate some unique characteristics for those people or some motivations for those people. Absolutely. And that is, that is what is in the fifth edition DMG that is not in here. Right. And, which and is that's a sad omission. That's, that's really good content to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, uh, well, especially if you're under pressure as a DM, if the players are staring at you and you're trying to put something together, like you've said, I need 60 seconds and you need, to break through your decision paralysis, that could be really, really helpful. Um, but the, the section on patrons here is one paragraph, and the section on patrons in Tasha's Cauldron to Everything is uh, one of my favorite chapters I've read in a, DM, in a D&D book in years. Uh, not many things have made me want to go start three new campaigns as much as that chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I feel like this this is the first section really of the book that we get to where I think, oh, that could have been way better. Yeah, it needed probably as much as a whole additional signature uh, of text, uh, 32 pages to build this out, and you've got something. But like, that's kind of the problem of backing off of really character-driven narrative. Um because 4E is very action-driven. And mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying this to to attack it. I, I really think what I'm saying is just just the straight truth. Um, but good character-driven narr- narrative needs you know, really robust characters who have things they want and reasons they can't have them. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and ways they're going to manipulate the situation or the PCs in order to get those things. Exactly. Um, so, so chapter seven, mm-hmm. uh, rewards, I mean, we've covered how experience points work. Mm-hmm. Uh, recapitulating that is probably not to the benefit of our listeners right now. No, uh, I mean, yeah, but I- important to remember, uh, just as a public service announcement, no edition of D and D has ever said that all XP comes from killing monsters. Correct. Not a single one. We checked. Never, ever. That's right. You take that to the bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't always drill down in what all those rewards should be because the DM's judgment is part of the rules of the game. 
Um, so, so, so yeah. Um, I like that they talk about how to vary action point rewards. Um, action points wind up being a lot of what 5e inspiration wants to be. Mm-hmm. Right. Can't quite reach it. Right. Yeah. Um, that's a whole other, that's another episode. Boy, is it. Yeah. Um, uh, so treasure. Uh, treasure. So, you know, um, another thing that, that fourth edition uh, took a lot of heat for was the idea of treasure parcels yep. and uh, signing and awarding uh, specific magic items to the players based on their wants and desires and not based on the story or the DMs fiat or anything else because magic items are in the player's handbook, not in the DMG. What's in the DMG is treasure parcels right. and there is a treasure parcel for each level. Now, famously the DMs fiat is in the vehicle section. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it breaks down all the time. So whatever. Well, um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, there are several skill challenge, uh, Sam. It's a skill challenge. It is a skill challenge. Yes. Um, it, so there are several pages of treasure parcels, and these are basically just lists of, you know, what you give a party. <laughs> yeah, and so so this puts me in mind of the um, the Forgotten Realms campaign setting of Fori, which had. Uh, just a list of different art object treasures from level one to level 30. And uh, you don't need to care about forgotten realms to realize uh, upon reading it, this stuff is great. It is absolutely great because some of uh, like at the mid to top end, they start being meaningful lore items. Oh yeah. Yeah. That matters. (laughs) <laughs> right, like, oh, this mask was stolen from my god. Cool. <laughs> it right. does mean it's worth more. It also means we should move it fast because <laughs> this shit is hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's really good. Yeah, so the, the reason, uh, dear audience, that he's talking about art objects is because uh, treasure comes in various different forms. And so when you look at a treasure parcel, you usually find uh, magic items of a certain level. You find some potions. You find art objects. That's what it says, art object. And it tells you how much the you know how much that thing is value, valued at. Right. Uh, and then there's some coinage and, and other items. But uh, art objects are a major area of treasure gathering in fourth edition although i think it's one of the probably most ignored aspects of treasure right and it's uh not really explored in this section at all and i don't i don't know if we're going to see it explored in the rest of the book no i don't think i I don't i don't think we are and so that's very kind of oh it tells you right it's very telling yeah so next up is campaigns, which is going to wind up recapitulating a lot of what it said about adventures, but on a different mm-hmm. scale. Right. We're, exactly. we're going from tactics to strategy, folks. Yep. Yep. And so it goes into campaign themes and uh, gives several examples and variations of those. It talks about super adventures 
um, which is basically a campaign. (laughs) Um, It talks about the campaign story, how it can evolve, how to write an outline. uh, And then it talks about beginning a campaign, how to do it if you're going to begin them at higher than first level. So that's your mechanical bits for this chapter. Yep. Um, It talks about running the campaign. So now you get back into the advice of, you know, lore and keeping track of different elements of the campaign talks about the tiers of play and it talks about how to end a campaign. And that's pretty much the end of the chapter. It really is a recapitulation of the adventure chapter, but applied to the bigger umbrella of a campaign itself. Um, And it tries to bring in some of the ideas about character types and all that, but it doesn't do as good a job of it as the adventure chapter, which I, think is probably okay if you just read the adventure chapter and now you're reading this one it's probably fine those ideas carry through yeah the keeping track section of course makes me think about uh gary in uh the first edition dmg keeping track of time keeping track of time <laughs> uh, yeah you, you know it. um because it is recapitulating that idea of like that through line of consistency and remembering the story of what came before as context for what comes next and like making the world live and breathe as much as possible. That's, that, that's all the thing that that's, that's the skill, right? Yep. And then that leads us to the next chapter, which is the world, which uh, basically says, um, you know, here's the D and D default world. And now Let's talk about what you might alter about that if you're going to create your own setting. And then it goes into what makes a civilization, uh, city sizes, uh, adventuring sites, different types of government, defense, commerce. This is now this is now going back to those same sections that you see, for example, in the first edition DMG, where you're talking about the government type in a city and what are the defenses like and what organizations are there. Um, This is much more readable and it's a much more conversational type of writing, but it also doesn't have as much information as the first edition DMG had on each of these elements. In all fairness, few things do. That's Uh, true. Yeah, sure. Short of being a book solely about world building, which by the way, I wouldn't have bought. Right. Yeah, sure. Uh, like, like I, I really like the the nine assumptions that they make about the D and D world, mm-hmm. then altering those assumptions. I think that's really strong right. stuff. Like I think we've talked in Twitter about how, um, and, and in some Tome Show reviews around how uh, a lot of settings like tell you up front what their assumptions are, both mm-hmm. where they're cleaving to D and D's assumptions and right. where they're consciously altering them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Pray I do not alter right. them further. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I mean, so this is a decent chapter, especially if you've never really thought of making your own setting or changing something uh, in a published setting. Um, it's it's fine. It's good. It's enough information to sort of get the creative juices flowing, so to speak. Um, and then then it talks about the wild. So it goes into environmental dangers and weather and starvation, thirst and suffocation. And then you get to the section where it talks about the different planes um, and Sigil, the city of doors. 
and then it talks about the gods of the default setting. And then it goes into artifacts and oh, gives and you notably it only shows the malign gods here. The correct because they are gods show up in the player's handbook. Right, exactly. And so and in the player's handbook they don't show the evil gods. Right? Yep. Um, so you know that's it's a nice that's bit fine. of keeping Thera's done, you know, chained. Right, sure. Yeah, yeah. Keeping quiet about Torog. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then artifacts, and it gives you some examples. For example, the Axe of the Dwarvish Lords and the Eye of Vecna. And in 4th edition, artifacts have a concordance score where um, if you have this item, you basically want to please the item because it will perform better for you if it is pleased. And if you do certain activities that displease the item, your concordance score goes down and you end up um, having relatively bad effects occur <laughs> yeah. uh, when you have this item. I mean, you definitely want something like an artifact to impact play as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And this is bringing it right into your role play. It's a stat on your page. Right. I like it when the stats go up and I don't like it when they go down. Right. That, right. Yep. That's the reward loop. It's great. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And the, and each of these gets a roughly two thirds of a page, and they're very well um, discussed. It, it tells you what the what benefit you get from from this item it, based on its concordance. So based on its idea about you, if it's pleased, satisfied, normal, unsatisfied, angered, um, it provides different benefits and drawbacks. And I think that's fantastic. And uh, I used that a lot when I, when I developed artifacts in my own game setting. So. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if I missed the concordance system or not. I haven't really hashed that out in my own mind, Yeah, but yeah. Um, it, it's very workable. Mm-hmm. I don't use the concordance system as written here, but just the idea of, a sentient artifact having a connection to you that changes based on the state of the item is an interesting point. Yep. Um, and then it has a, a little one page note about languages and words of power. And then that ends the chapter. Yeah. I, I have to wish that they'd included some note on, man, it's really hard to make interesting challenges around not sharing a language. Um, and especially if there's a, a member of the party, God help you, who doesn't share a language with every other member of the party, things break fast. And uh, that's one of those things that if they're not going to list it, someone's going to find out the hard way. Right. Yep. And anyway, so then we move on to the DM's toolbox. It's chapter 10. And we get a lot of templates. Right. So we get how to customize a monster. And here are some templates for you for customizing those monsters. And then there's some um, sidebars regarding monster abilities and soul weapons. And, uh, you know, this is very much a, hey, use this thing. Right. Um, then Then it gives you class templates. So if you want to adjust classes um yeah and i do really like the templates um though they're a bit clunky to use you know 
uh, just completely a la carte because you're remembering to modify the numbers as you go. Like if you are just working off the cuff from the books during session, that's not going to work great. If you're working from D and D insider as for strongly intends for you to do mm-hmm. this stuff is beautiful. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it has a section on uh, creating monsters whole cloth. So not template based. Yep. Um, where it gives you another table that is very similar to the page 42 table because it talks about statistics by role yep. and uh, damage by level. Yeah, and I, I love this just for coming clean about what the math is and means. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Completely transparent, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there are tables sort of like this in the 5e DMG, but if you start crunching the numbers on all the monsters, you learn that some of those are a lie. Uh, and it would be nice to get to tra- transparency. It's just that they've given you the simplified version that's mostly good enough. Right. And they they eyeballed it and said, oh, here's the table we'll give to the readers. Right. And, and a lot of the creatures created <laughs> do not match what they provide on well, that well, table. Right. And they're... Uh, Unfortunately, the stuff on the page in the DMG is set in, well, paper, but stone, uh, mm-hmm. uh, unlike a, a living and developing understanding of what makes a great monster design, because the people on the design team are, are humans capable of learning. Right. So anyway, so that leads us into creating NPCs, and here is where you get the NPC mannerisms and quirks and ability scores and level bonuses and magic thresholds and, you know, some very basic, you know, cleric NPC, rogue NPC, if you want them to have uh, character classes, this is where you get those tables that, that should have been also available to the villains with some slight changes. Yep. Um, But, you know, um, so all this really shows me is that this book, like all of the DMGs that we have, discussed so far has formatting and layout issues well um and fails to make connections where connections should be made although i have to say this one makes connections more than any of the other ones i would agree with that so Uh, you know you know it's it's one of the one of the things about my games that i want to have a lot of humanoids who are you know on comparable footing Maybe a couple levels above, a couple levels below, but uncomparable footing to the to the PCs, um, which says a lot about how second ed and third ed just shaped my conception of fantasy. And fourth edition can be made to do that if you put in a lot of elbow grease in designing a lot of custom monsters. It doesn't do that easily, um, and. This uh, you know page one eighty eight with the uh, class NPC stuff. It's a nice effort, but it does not do the work because because of what powers are like in in fourth, right? It's 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 the most basic way you could possibly write what a warlord NPC has available, <laughs> right? And and right. if. If uh, action is character, well, these aren't actions. Right, exactly. This is the passive parts that we actually don't care about very much. 
And as you said, this is a very action-oriented system. So yep. to not have that stuff, and not even suggestions, it doesn't even say, hey, we suggest that if, you know, here's some powers that this person would have available to them. That's just missing. It's not here. Yep. So it's really not an NPC. It's a Well, so for example, it's not a warlord NPC because all this is is an NPC that has the martial power source. Okay, it's a fighter. Right, and I get. I do you tell me some stats about its uh, its defenses and its HP. Yep. Well, so what? I yep. mean, that doesn't tell me anything about the NPC. It doesn't tell me why it's a warlord. Yep. Absolutely. So anyway. <laughs> no, I, I, I feel you. Yeah. Um, uh, then we get to creating house rules. Um, one page on. Designing house rules. Yeah, oh, that's Lord. true, but I appreciate the three bullet points under Rules Design 101 because yep. the first bullet point says, why do I want to change or add this rule? Yeah, like the, the sense I take away from that is you know, the, the design team sitting there with their head in their hands saying, okay, we have a lot of people asking us about house rules. They have not thought this through. <laughs> guys right. y'all no or whatever and you know I, i'm not the person who's gonna run totally unmodified dnd um right but so. also let me remind you this came out at the same time as the phb and the dmg yep so there weren't a lot of people asking about it uh i think that since the whole design team had you know been around for third ed Mm-hmm. They they knew it was going to be a thing. They knew, right? Sure, and, for sure. And also, they were talking to their playtesters. Mm-hmm. Right? But if that's the case, then this one page is—you might as well not even have it in here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you know, it's it's kind of interesting that they put it in here, but it's like you know, okay, well, you're not really doing anything for me. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, and then it has a section on building a random dungeon, which is a traditional DMG thing that uh, is in the first edition DMG. Um, it's not as extensive as what's in the first uh, edition DMG, but it has a few very basic things. There's a few geomorphs. It's fine. Yeah. And then it has a random encounter uh some advice about random encounters, how to how to uh, think about the basics of an encounter, and possibly making an encounter deck to generate encounters with. That's um, a pretty solid idea. Yeah, and then there's the yeah, it, it is a pretty solid idea. And then there's the playing without a DM. I'm playing without a net, sure. Yeah, uh, which gets a paragraph basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the thing I like about so let me go back to this encounter deck real quick. It also talks about how to generate encounters from that, and then it has this thing after it that says twists. Like, here's how to use a sort of generic encounter deck to create a random encounter, and then add a twist to it that makes it interesting. Yeah, man, I cannot believe they buried this beautiful piece of advice so far back, on page one ninety five in this right. book, like. No, you have this awesome idea. Center it. Why is this not in the encounter building section? Because, man, evolving deck. That is right. so good. Yeah. 
Exactly. So anyway, um, so once again, to highlight the issues of some things being in the wrong chapter or, you know, whatever, there you go. There's one of them. Yeah. And it is advice for certain situations, not for, for every dungeon, but it's good stuff. Oh, and right. Fallcrest. Yeah, so the last chapter, I think it's the last chapter, right, is a sort of um, introduction to the town of Fallcrest, which is in the default setting of 4th edition, which is called the Nintir Vale. And so it uh, tells you, it gives you a nice map, it tells you about some key locations, gives you a couple of uh, different uh, NPCs uh, for there, some backstory for a lot of these buildings. Then it gives you a two or three page spread on the entire area, the Nintir Vale, uh, with several important locations uh, labeled and giving about a you know paragraph worth of information. It talks about how to uh, think about the races in this setting. And it talks about how to think about the classes in this setting. And then it has a nice little uh, adventure called Cobalt Hall, which uh, gives you a sort of an introduction and an overall map. And then it has the standard uh, fourth edition one to two page encounter spread with a mini map and any stat blocks that are necessary. Um, and uh, and then that rounds out the rest of the book, except it ends with an index, which is mm, barely passable. And then it also, right before that, has some PC combat cards and some monster combat cards so that the DM can have a sort of, you know, little one-page item that uh, they could use if they want to create something that's an easy reference for their particular game session. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you made these a little bit larger and laminated them um, for use with dry race markers, I think you've got something really strong here. I agree with that. You know, the adventure is a very basic um, sort of dungeon crawl. It has the typical five room dungeon from fourth edition. Um you know, it's called Cobalt Hall, so you can figure that the main uh, antagonists in this story are some kobolds. It's an abandoned manor near Fallcrest. There's a little tiny bit of wilderness travel, and then you find the place. Um, you know, uh, I would say that they sort of follow the adventure and encounter building advice mm-hmm. in this adventure, and they sort of don't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but it's passable. It's fine. It's decent. Um, I think the, the, the town information and the world information is, is, is a nice addition rather than just have a little five or 10 page adventure in the back, giving that town and world information is a good idea. I like the way that they did it. Yep. Um, we actually did use uh Fallcrest in a short term game that I ran. Uh, I found it to be perfectly fine. Um, it, it gets its job done pretty well, and you know it, it points to multiple other places you can go to, you know, find something to do. Just there's some action over here, some action over here. Great. Yep. I mean, keeping the Shadowfell and Hammerfast definitely got published as adventures. There's Gardmore Abbey also published. Um, uh, the Temple Temple of Yellow Skulls is actually from one of the novels. Oh, nice. And then Thunderspire. Of course, got published. So, 
if you if you're using this, you can absolutely go. You know, well, at the time, who knows now, but probably uh, you can go buy the adventures that they're talking about. And they're right there. They're actually hooked into Falkrest in some way, kind of kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, and then that brings us to the end of the book. And, you know, a pretty marathon episode from us, but... Uh, <laughs> no different from any of the other marathon ones we've done this this Christmas. Yeah, accurate. Um, but, I mean, it's a really good DMG. Um, it doesn't work great outside of its edition. Uh, it works better than other DMGs, maybe, outside of its edition. Um, because it it is advice-driven in a practical way, and... There's a lot of creative thought that goes into uh, how can we make this good? What really sings in this edition? And how can we really uh, give that some punch? I think it's a good DMG because for the first time, they really, for the first time in a core DMG, they really made an attempt to talk about the theory of how to make the game fun and how to consider play styles and how to, you know, more than just the sort of um, mechanical, here's how you prep an encounter and like that stuff's good too, if you're playing the edition, but the idea of this book can kind of teach you some skills that are widely applicable for running games from a lot of different systems. This DM does this DMG does that, and I'm not sure any of the other DMGs did it. Maybe the third edition DMG too, because it had a lot of advice about more th- the theory of how to make the game fun. But I think this one more than any before it actually really has the intention of doing that. Yeah, in a, in a way that's more easily digested by a newer player. I think that's fair. Um, I mean, no DMG before or since has had the first-time DM more in mind than this one. Uh, and that's a great thing to see. Um, it Every DMG is going to just read really strangely if you've been doing this for a long time, because you're going to be set in your ways. Right. Um, and a lot of times you're going to stare at some of these innovative tools and think, but I have a perfectly good way of doing it already. Then I've been doing it for 30 (laughs) years in (laughs) this case or 20 (laughs) in mine. Uh, Right. Yeah. And um, maybe you aren't, aren't looking to change anything up because like you want the new rules of a, a, a new edition, but your DMing isn't, at stake. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe that's one of the, one of the things that, uh, makes it weird to even talk about GMing D and D as opposed to GMing non D and D games where you, you buy a game for the first time as opposed to buying a new edition. It's a very different experience, even though in another way, they're both new games that you kind of need to learn from this learn from the jump. I think though that fourth edition in, in that, in, in that framing fourth edition actually 
had some baggage it had to overcome, but then also had the benefit of being so very different from all the additions before it, that it did feel like a new system in a lot of ways. It used some of the same terminology and language, but the way that it, that it worked to some people was so foreign in terms of the healing and the, and the, uh, at will encounter daily situation that that made people sort of sit up and pay attention to it in a way that made it feel like a new system versus, you know, and I hear, I still hear people all the time say, well, you know, fourth edition was a great game. It's just that it wasn't really the D and D everybody wanted. So if you had called it anything else, it probably would have been even more successful, but you can't call it D and D cause it doesn't, it didn't hit all these tick boxes, these, you know, arbitrary tick boxes. Oh. And so in some in some ways that's good because it means that that DMG may maybe could have spoken to those people who sure who who would only really read it if it was a new game. You know what I mean? Yep. Um I mean the, the reasons that Fury didn't sort of bring in the whole uh 3.5e audience and then keep growing it they're, they're many and varied. Um, mm-hmm. It does have a very different kind of sense of narrative pacing, of uh, action pacing, of uh, how cool you get to be in the world as an action hero at any given level. That's mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. a very different sense of things. Um, and, I mean... Uh, I remember a lot of the early marketing and design diary stuff around that, that was talking about how um, they were, like they did have a particular tone in mind and just kind of stepped away from the fact that in other editions of D and D, a lot of different tones are treated as equally viable. Like, uh, Second edition in particular doesn't try to pick a tone. It, it instead very consciously says there are a lot of different tones you can play this with, and uh, we don't necessarily have the wherewithal to tell you how to pick one of them up in the DMG. But we're going to publish a lot of additional material that is going to touch on how to evoke other tones, right. uh, tones other than kind of um, high fantasy action hero. You know, you you always have the upper hand kind of kind of situations. Um, gothic horror, where you need to be the underdog a lot of the time. Um, in a lot of ways, I think the second edition DMG is the most open. Yeah, for just the reasons you're stating. You know, the first edition D and D DMG presents it as here's the way to play the game. You can use these optional things, and if you do, this is how you use them. Um, third edition was very similar. Here's the new game. Here's how this works. It's very important that you follow these very precise structures. Otherwise the game falls apart. Yep. Fourth edition was, let's show you the new things we've done and it's brand new. So we're going to try to painstakingly tell you about them. And it's important you follow the AEDU structure. Yep. Second edition was, hey, you know, it's a fantasy game and you can play it lots of different ways. And here's some advice on if you want to use modifiers for combat or if you want to do XP a different way or if you want to, you know. Um, 
it's it feels like the more open-ended DMG of all the ones we've covered so far. Even the third edition DMG2 wasn't really open-ended. It was just more ways to use the system. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, anyway, I think that is a, a great ending to this particular discussion. We are going to cover the, the second DMG from fourth edition. And uh, it's a book that both of us really like uh, for various different reasons. And also, I think there's a couple of disagreements that we might have. So, ooh, this might actually be the edition war war episode. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Probably not. Probably not. Anyway, so, sir, where can people find you on the internet? People can find me on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. You can uh, read my work on tribality.com, on brendastoddard.com. And finally, I have a Patreon that is Brandis Stoddard. And you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel, or you can find me on the web at RPGmusings.com. You can also find me on The Tome Show and on Facebook and eh, whatever. I'm online places. Anyway, so we hope you've been enjoying this series. And uh, I, I'm having a great deal of fun recording these and going back through these, these books. And, um, you know, every time I look at some of these books, I learn something new. So... You know, it's always a learning experience, which is good. Yeah, um, I I definitely forgotten how exciting some of the advice in um, in just the four E DMG was, because it did get so overshadowed by the DMG two in my memory. Uh, I had forgotten that there was so much exciting advice in the third ed DMG two, because it, it's really neat. Uh, but yeah, we should actually call it here. Yeah. And so, audience, wear your mask. Wear your mask. Black Lives Matter. Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, a series in which we take a deep dive into the Dungeon Master's guides written for the previous editions of our favorite game. Series, not Siri. Uh, Amazing.